So we're going to read from uh, Judges 11, 28 uh, through to 40. It says, But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent, that he sent to him. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mitzpah of Gilead. And from Mitzpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Mineth, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Kamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what, you, what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Giladite, four days in the year. Father, we pray for your blessing for Christ Community West and all that is to come. And we pray for Al Stewart now and for his uh, preaching to us as well, that you give him all that he needs to minister to us now. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Mikey. Thanks, Luke. Well, I remember a mate of mine, uh, we'd been mates, I suppose, three, four years, saw a fair bit of each other. And we'd kind of been doing, he wasn't a Christian, and we'd kind of been doing the waltz, the, the gospel waltz, you know, like I step forward, he steps back, we step around and kind of dancing around the subject. And I remember one day it kind of just came out and I, I just pushed a little bit harder than usual and I got a very, like kind of the hand out saying, now listen, and he, got, he actually got cranky with me. He said, I want to tell you straight why it is that I will never become a Christian. Okay, tell me. And what he told me is that Five, six years before that, uh, he had a, a daughter uh, born premature and uh, in intensive care and on death's door. And he said, I prayed to God and I said, if you let her live, I will serve you for the rest of my life. And I meant it. And then my daughter died. I will never become a Christian. And... As I kind of look in his eyes immediately, you think, well, you know, you can't bargain with God. And, uh, but, 
But it, it's a natural thing to do, isn't it? To try and get some traction to kind of do a deal with God. And you read Judges chapter 11 and there's the problem. Uh, Jephthah, uh, or Jephthah, hard, hard name to say, who is apparently the hero of the story, sacrifices his daughter. And not, and not to one of the Canaanite gods like Molech or Chemosh or whatever who wanted the human sacrifices. He sacrifices her to Yahweh. Uh, how, do you, how do you make sense of that? Now, there's, there's all sorts of different solutions um, offered. Uh, I was just checking around on the web and I found uh, some writing by um, a, uh, a Mormon feminist uh, theology. And I thought, well... That's got to be right. Um, but, but what this particular lady said, actually what she said is what a lot of number of commentators say is that Jephthah didn't really kill her. What he did was to um, dedicate her to the Lord and she became kind of a, you know, like a, a nun sort of thing. Uh, but that's driven by soft Western political correctness rather than the text. Have a look at it. Um, I'm using the NIV, but uh, Luke read to us from the ESV, which may be a little more accurate. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, if you give the Ammonites into my hands, 11 verse 31, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me, when I return in triumph from the Ammonites, will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Verse 39, after two months she returned to her father, and he did to her as she had vowed. But it's not just a translation. The, the flow of the story uh, means that he sacrificed her. And that is, if she was just going to become a nun and she'd never get married and all that kind of thing and never have children, whatever, why does she need to go and take two, year, uh, two months to go and mourn? She'd have the rest of her life to do that. Uh, she, like, she's got the next 50 years to be miserable. Why go and concentrate it for two months? How do you make sense of the Jephthah story? Um, in fact, let me show you uh, what, I, what I think I've understood, and I reckon I've read it so many times, and two days ago, I've, I think I've understood what it, what it says to us. Anyway, let me have a look. It's all about, there's three scenes written. Um, this, the, the book of Judges is so beautifully put together. The actual, the beginning of the Jephthah story starts before he's mentioned, and you'll see in the outline and on the, um, on the screen, three scenes all about bargaining or doing deals or trying to bribe someone. So the first scene's about Israel bargaining with God. Okay. I won't give the background of judges. I'm assuming that you were here. The idea of the cycle, they walk away from God. God sends someone to punish them. They call out to God, etc. A new cycle begins, uh, chapter 10, verse 6. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Asheroths. And we found out yesterday why they are so powerful and seductive, those false gods. And the gods of Aram and the gods of Sidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. So they reject God and walk away. And so what happens? Verse 7, the Lord... Oh, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, uh, the land of the Amorites. Verse 9, the Ammonites uh, crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah and Benjamin and the house of Ephraim, and Israel was in great distress. Same old cycle goes on, so what do they do? Verse 10, then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. And the Lord responds before they even, like you can hear the exasperation in God's voice as he speaks in verse 11. The Lord replied, when the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites and the Philistines and the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried out to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods that you have chosen. Let them save you 
um, when you are in trouble. Basically, God's saying, I've had enough, you're fickle. Verse 15, but the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of their foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And why do they do this? And how would you react? I remember um, uh, when I was in New College 100 years ago with Phil Campbell, actually, I remember. Don't you remember, mate? It was almost 100 years ago. In the, in the group that I lived in, this was in the mid-70s, right? In the, in the residential group that I lived in, as a guy who was a very good student in a particular faculty, and a very pretty girl from two, from two floors up used to visit him occasionally. He was actually very pleased that she visited and so on. She was very pretty and attractive and so on, until he worked out that she, she was doing the same course as he was, and the only time she visited him was when she wanted an essay or exam notes or something, and she didn't speak to him at other times. And the shutters went down on her quicker than you could say, that's it, sweetheart. Because she was just using him, right? Just using him. But the God of the Bible is not like that. Do you see verse 16? They're just using the Lord. They're coming back. It's only now that they're in trouble. However, we're told, and the Lord, the end of verse 16, the Lord, he could bear Israel's misery no longer. And so he decides that he will save them. Why? Out of compassion. So Israel comes across as bargains with God. Then you get seen too about Israel bargaining with Jephthah, which begins verse 17. Right, now, how will the Lord save them? He'll save them through this unusual saviour, like all the judges are, um, Jephthah. Now, how will it happen? Well, it begins with the Ammonites uh, invading Israel. Verse 17, when the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped in Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, Whoever will launch the attack against the Ammonites will be head of all those living in Gilead. Now, Gilead often gets a beating. I'll show you the map. So Gilead is on the eastern side. Um, Gilead's in here on the eastern side of the Jordan, right up snug against Ammon. And that's why so often it's, uh, the people who live in Gilead actually uh, take a beating and so on. And what we get then uh, is a flashback of where Jephthah comes from. See, chapter 11, verse 1, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead, his, who was obviously an important man, um, was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. So you've got, you've got the illegitimate son and then the legitimate sons. Um, and when they were growing... Uh, when they were growing up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a group of adventurers gathered around him and followed him. So Jephthah's rejected, abandoned, except when they're in trouble. What happens? Verse 4. Sometime later, when the Ammonites made war on Israel, the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah, from in the land of Tob, uh, sorry, Jep, sorry, went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. We're in trouble. Help us. We want to come back to you now. Does that sound familiar? Okay. It's meant to. Uh, now, Jephthah isn't an idiot. Verse 7. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? And so what do they do? Well, they offer him a bribe. Okay, they appeal to his self-interest. Verse 8, the elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be our head over all who live in Gilead. 
Jephthah answered, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? Now, he doesn't believe in the goodness of human nature. He's saying, really? Will you really? Um, verse 10, the, um, the elders of Gilead replied, the Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and commander over them and he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Now, now can you just think, just a minute, real people, real events, rejected, cast out, born illegitimately into an important family, thrown out a nobody and then all of a sudden he gets the offer of being the head man of the whole tribe. Now you imagine how important that would be to him. You imagine what he would do to get that all of a sudden, he's somebody, he's got status, he's important, people respect him. It would be like oxygen to his soul. Yeah? Okay. But Jephthah does it for a different reason. He steps in and helps Israel, not out of compassion the way Yahweh does. Jephthah is just the straight old, what's in it for me? And what's in it for him? Status, he's somebody, he gets respect, oxygen. And then, okay, so he goes in, takes up the job, gets behind the desk. The first thing he does is send a diplomatic message uh, to the Ammonites. Uh, it takes a long time to sort out verses 12 to 28. Um, there's all sorts of history in there and different nations. And so on. let me give you a very quick summary of what he says in this thing. First thing is this. Uh, the Ammonites um, wanted half the land from Gilead. But the, their claim was they wanted half of Gilead's land. Jephthah sends them three points. One... Um, it wasn't theirs anyway. They took it from the Amorites, who are a different tribe to the Ammonites. Um, and the only reason that Israel took it from the Amorites in the first place was that the Amorite king wanted to fight when Israel was coming from the Exodus. So Jephthah says, listen, it never was yours. Pull your head in. Um, the second one, um, look, we're happy with what our God gave us. Why can't you be happy with what your God gave you? Uh -huh. Stop whinging. And the third one, it's been this way for 300 years. What's your problem? Why, you know, why, why the drama all of a sudden? Uh, doesn't work. The Abanite king is still on for, uh, for a fight to take the land. And so, scene three, about Jephthah bargaining with God. See verse 28. The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. I gather as he travelled through the towns, he's pulled an army together. Okay. Now, here's the irony. In Judges, when it says the Spirit of the Lord came upon somebody, basically, that's it. They're going to win. It's like, it's all over, Red Rover. They, the Spirit of the Lord comes on, uh, on Gideon in chapter 6, or, or God raises up um, Ehud in chapter 3, or Barak in chapter 4, or you see it happen tomorrow in, with Samson in chapters 13 through to 16. The Spirit of the Lord comes on someone, and then... They go and kick some butts. That's, that, that's just going to happen. You know he's going to win. Um, but for some reason, Jephthah either doesn't know or isn't sure or doesn't trust. He doesn't trust. Now, let me just read you something. See, look, verse 29. There's no need to... Just trust me. Don't follow in your... Just stop looking at your Bibles for a minute, all right? Trust me. Trust me. Okay. And Jephthah made a... Um, here we go. Verse 29. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hand. Make sense? Yeah? Okay. What did I leave out? The vow about his daughter. And the point is, the vow is unnecessary. 
God has already given him victory. All he's got to do is man up and go and do it. Okay? The, the vow is totally unnecessary. You take it out, the flow makes sense. But look at verse 30. Okay? The Spirit of the Lord's come upon him. He, just go and do it, mate. Trust me. Go and do it. Um, verse 30. I think the author's making the point that the vow is unnecessary. Verse 30, And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, if you, give me the, if you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. See, why is he doing that? He's trying to bribe God. Why? I, I think he just expects that everyone will be like that. And that's the history of his life and the way people have treated him and he assumes God is like that. What's he not understand or not believe or, or, or doubt? One, he doubts the goodness of God. Um, that you've got to bribe God. In the story, everyone acts selfishly except God. He doubts the goodness of God. And you know what else he doubts? The power of God. You can't bribe God or, or offer God something. God owns it all anyway. So he doubts the goodness of God and he doubts the power of God. And he's taking a risk. He's trying to, like, he's try, it's the con, isn't it? He's not, he doesn't offer his daughter. He just says, whatever comes out to meet me, maybe it'll be a servant. Maybe, you know, maybe it'll be my Staffordshire Terrier that comes out to meet me and, uh, and so on. Uh, he, he's still trying to con God. So verse 32, he goes over, he fights. Verse 33, he devastates 20 towns. The victory's won, and yet the tragedy plays out. So the, the victory of the 20 towns is taken one verse. What the writer wants us to see is the tragedy that happens after. Verse 34, when Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter? Dancing to the sound of tambourine, she was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore, her clo tore his clothes and cried, Oh, my daughter, you have made me miserable and wretched because I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. Uh, the ESV gives you a little more literal translation, which is useful. The idea is not, the word's not vow, I've opened my mouth to the Lord. Okay. And Jephthah's name means he opens. I've opened my mouth, he opens, opened his mouth to the Lord. And why is he so upset? Was well, his daughter, but it's his only daughter. Not only is his only daughter, which means... Um, that if she dies now, uh, he will have no children, and have, having no children is such a heartache, but in the, in the Old Testament, it's, a, it's an even bigger heartache because the way that you lived on in the Promised Land is through your descendants. So to have descendants meant that your name lived on, you kept possession, if you like, in the Promised Land. To, his line will finish now. We think, well, why don't you just break the vow? Oh, it's not that easy. It's not that easy. Um, let me show you. Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word but must do everything he said. Or Deuteronomy 23, 21. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it, for the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do. Because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. Now, Leviticus 5 verse 4 offers some kind of loophole. I'll read it to you. I haven't got it on the screen, but it's worth taking. It says this. If a person thoughtlessly takes an oath to do anything, whether good or evil, in any matter one might carelessly swear about, even though he is unaware of it, 
In any case, when he learns of it, he will be guilty. And then you can offer a sacrifice and have your guilt removed. But I think what it's talking about is if you say something rash, even, um, even kind of curse someone about something, uh, kind of, you know, um, wish ill on someone or whatever, even if, even if it was just a careless thing and you don't remember it, you are guilty. But I don't think Leviticus 5.4 is like a loophole to get out of a deliberate oath. I don't think so. It's like this sacrifice covers unintentional or, or just rash oaths, things you didn't realise you'd said. It's like the sacrificial system doesn't cover high-handed or deliberate or defiant sin. Okay? If you deliberately or literally with a high hand sin defiantly, Numbers 15 verse 30, the sacrifices weren't effective. Okay? So she understands. She gets it. She says, see verse 36, My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. Now that seems strange to us, but people in the Old Testament understand the power of oaths. Do you remember the story in 1 Samuel 14 where Saul, when he's, um, he's fighting a battle, he makes this stupid... Um, oath or takes, puts this curse and so on. Um, 1 Samuel 14, he says, Now the men of Israel were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under oath, saying, Cursed be any man who eats food before evening, before I have avenged myself of my enemies. So none of his troops tasted food. Except, anyone remember what actually happens? Jonathan finds honey, you know, hanging in a beehive or whatever, and has himself a handful of honey. And then Saul finds out about that, and Jonathan finds out about the, the oath or the curse. And you let me show you what happened, right? Um, and every trans... Oh, I'll show you. The NIV says, Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him, I merely tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now I must die? Question mark. Except it doesn't have to be a question. The NIV's made it a question. No other translation does that. Okay? So the New American Standard, what does Jonathan say? Here I am. I must die. Or the King James, and lo, I must die. Or the ESV, uh, here I am, I will die. As it, Jonathan says, he mightn't like it, it might be stupid, but Saul's made this stupid oath, and now Jonathan's going to die. Now that's one set. Can you remember what happens? Well, the troops, Jonathan's the hero of the day. He's kind of, he's, he's won the day and started the, the rout of the Philistines and so on. And the troops there jack up and say to Paul, there is no way you are killing this man. He lives. And so Saul gives in. But I think there's consequences. You notice as you read on, both Saul and Jonathan die in battle on the same day. In the next chapter, Saul has the kingdom taken away from him. And Saul and Jonathan's bodies are both burned the way that Achan's body is burned back in, um, uh, in Joshua chapter 7 when he actually breaks the idea of the things dedicated to God. I just think there's consequences and vows cannot, cannot be broken without consequences. See, here's what I'm not, uh, I'm not excusing Jephthah. I'm just saying our 21st century years hear it differently to the way that the Israelites would have. Here's how I say We read the story. Sorry, the Israelites, sorry. We read the story, and here's what we think. You mean you sacrificed your daughter, you monster. That's what we, that's what we hear, right? What the Israelites would have heard is, you fool, how could you have made that oath? Do you see? You fool, how could you have made that oath? 
we just the scene is almost at the is at the is at a different point in terms of what we what we hear. And so he does it. Verse 37, but grant me this one request. She says, give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and let her go for two months. And she and the, and the girls went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she, ret- uh, she returned to her father and he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite custom that each year young women of Israel go out for four days to com- uh, commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. That's another reason why I think that uh, he actually sacrificed her, and that is you don't have a four-day holiday to uh, commemorate someone becoming a nun. Um, she, she died. All right, lessons from the tragedy. Pretty nasty story, isn't it? Uh, could God ever demand a human sacrifice? Well, the Old Testament is full of human sacrifice to, well, there's many instances of human sacrifice to the fertility gods of other nations, to Molech and Chemosh and others. And God explicitly forbids that human sacrifice for the sake of fertility and power. And God doesn't want this little girl's life either. But do you know, have you noticed that sometimes there are things that are serious enough in terms of sin and consequences that God demands human lives? So in the plagues in Exodus, the 10th plague, every firstborn son in Egypt dies because of the sins of the Egyptians. God demands their lives. And the Old Testament talks about things that are dedicated to God, things that are harem, um, that is, they belong to God, and, or the, the translation sometimes it's, you know, they're devoted to destruction is sometimes the thing. And that is, these things belong to God, he has claimed them because of sin, and the way they're shown they belong to God is that they are to be destroyed. And that is, the people that are in the promised land as Israel invades, or, or the Amalekites, um, in the chapter after we read about Saul and the honey, in 1 Samuel 15, the, Malachite, the Amalekites are so evil they are devoted to destruction and Saul loses the kingship. Why? Because he won't carry out that penalty. I, I just think I don't hear many sermons on this. Um, I just worry that sometimes you know, there's a whole theological treacle industry out there uh, and it's underwritten by Max Licardo and... Um, uh, the, you know, the fluffy kittens and Bible verse poster printers. Um, we shrink God down to someone we have a cappuccino with. Um, God becomes our life coach. I'll tell you the problem with preaching God who you have a cappuccino with, that is, is it any wonder people kind of get half-hearted about obeying him or expect him to fit around the important things in their lives? And so what I should have said to my, uh, my mate that day and probably got a punch in the head, but what I probably should have said is, mate, I know it hurts, but when you offered to serve God if he gave you your daughter, God owned you already. It's like saying, oh, I'm a motor car, and if you give me this, I'll roll along the road for you. You were made to serve him. He owns you already, and he owns your daughter. He's got all the cards. You can't bargain with him. Jephthah tries to bribe God by offering God what was already his the daughter. Two points to finish. Do you notice um, the two lessons, one about God, one about people. Do you notice um, what God says during the whole event? Have a look around what God says, the, you know, um, chapter 11. Answer is nothing. God is silent. And what's it say? God had already chosen to give him victory. 
What, what was asked was that God would, that he would actually trust God, not try and manipulate or bargain with God. That, that's, that's the point. And here's, here's the thing. I, I think this was summarised by Martin Lloyd-Jones. I think this is his sentence. God is not under obligation to lessen the consequences of human sin. I'll say it again. God is not under obligation to lessen the consequences of human sin or pride or foolishness. And so you look at chapter 12, verse 7. Jephthah led Israel six years. Then Jephthah, the Gileadite, died and was buried in a town in Gilead. And his descendants, there were none. And now we live in a world where you see consequences of sin, of uh, people's pain and the mess in their lives and anxiety and heartache and families torn apart and lives of frustration and anxiety and greed. And you look out at your world and you see a society that's hell-bent on being hell-bent. And God is not obligated to relieve those consequences. God is a God of justice. I think God could ever demand the sacrifice of an innocent person because someone else had done something stupid. God could demand the sacrifice of an innocent person because someone else had done something stupid. Surely not. And yet isn't that absolutely the beating heart of the Christian faith, the cross? And, and he's, he, you know, Jesus dies in our place, and yet isn't it subtly different? And that is, Jesus doesn't die because of his father's selfishness or stupidity. He dies because of our selfishness and stupidity. And I just think, we, you know, you so easily lose perspective. You think, oh, Jephthah, that story, what a terrible story. This little girl dies because of his foolishness and stupidity. Um, but, you know, Jesus died on the cross because... I did the same thing, so did you. Lesson for us? I only just saw this the other day. I think it's the point. The trouble is that the human sacrifice thing is so big, it's hard to actually see past it, I think, to the real lesson. And here's, here's the real lesson. Look at verse 35. Chapter 11, verse 35. She runs out to see her dad and Jephthah says, Oh, my daughter, my heart breaks for you. Your young life, and you will be afraid, I feel for you. You won't marry, you won't have children, you'll suffer. I am so sorry, it's all my fault. Please forgive me. Did your translation say something different? Now, isn't that what he should have said? Right? I'm so sorry, your life, your... It should have been about her and his grief over her. Now, listen to what the selfish mongrel actually says. Look at verse 35. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, my daughter, you have made me miserable and wretched. Huh? You've done this to me. And then he has the hide to say, Because I've made a vow to the Lord, I cannot break. In other words, you've made me miserable and it's not my fault. Sounds a little bit like um, the woman that you put here with me, she did it and wasn't. it's like your fault or hers, but it's not... The real problem is this, he is a self-centred, selfish mongrel. And everything in the story is about him, his status, his name, his, it's like oxygen for his soul and he will do whatever it takes to get it or keep it. Do you see that's what the vow's about? I read you a quote from Barry Webb, um, who is just a genius with this Old Testament stuff, Barry Webb. Um, 
In its penetrating study of the man Jephthah, the story has something to say about the human condition. Jephthah is a capable man, capable with words, capable in battle, a strong, decisive personality and a leader of men. He has potential for true greatness, but he has a background, a personal history, which helps us to understand his limitations, even if we cannot condone them. He is insecure and he is self-centred. He can never fully engage with anyone else's interests but his own. This is the hardness in the man and the reason why he can, why he can never be great. To this insecurity and self-interest, sorry, it is to this insecurity and self-interest that his daughter is sacrificed. Jephthah cannot be a father. For the same reason, he cannot be a Moses. Jephthah the Gileadite, head and commander of all the inhabitants of Gilead, is as high as Jephthah can rise. He may be judged in Israel, but he can never care about Israel as Yahweh does. He's self-centred. Everything's about him. His ministry, his service of God and everything is just about him and his status. Now, I sat down for a long time and I just tried to think, I can't see any way of linking that to church planning. <laughs> I just, how could that possibly be anything like church planning and Christian ministry? And I just, like, help me. Can you see a link maybe? And man, isn't that, isn't it so easy for it to become all about us? Isn't it? I don't know how much the ladies understand of that, but man, the blokes, if you don't get it, you're telling porkies. You're telling porkies. It is just so easy for this all to be about me and my status and my reputation. We want to grow a big church? Yeah. But we want to have people follow us too. And why do we worry that it might not work? Is it that not as many people will get saved? Or is it what will people think of me? And it's always mixed up, isn't it? And do you know what? I think we're even capable of sacrificing our families to get it. Neglect them, drag them through discomfort. Now, I'm not saying make your family into an idol and wrap them in cotton wool and all that kind of thing. But you put your family through a really hard time, and some of us will. It better be for the service of Jesus, not the service of self. And I have been guilty of this uh, many times. Many times. Now, how can you tell? Our, <laughs> our motives are always mixed. They're always grey. They're never black or white, are they? Here's a few just little litmus tests for the Jephthah in all of us. If you're serving Jesus, you can rejoice in the success of others rather than be envious. If we're serving Jesus... We can rejoice in the giftedness of others and give them space and let them use those gifts without feeling threatened. If you're serving Jesus, you'll be able to take time off because he can run the world without us. And I did preach that one to myself just now, my dear. Yes, okay. Because the job of Jesus is already taken. If we're serving Jesus, we'll be less concerned about our own name and more concerned about his. And if we're serving Jesus, we'll be happy to do things that no one will ever notice to serve others. And ministry's got to be about the service of Jesus and not and the service of Jesus and the service of others, not the service of ourselves. I'll tell you why, because until you learn that, and I'm still trying to learn it, until you learn that, you'll always be driven and you'll never find joy in it. You'll always be driven and never find joy. What is it that Jesus says about the way to find greatness? He says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. Want to find joy in Christian ministry? Understand it's not about me. I am a servant of others. You pray with me? Father, we ask please that we may all be able to learn this great lesson, that in serving the Lord Jesus and so serving others, we will find freedom and life. We ask please that you might help us to learn this through your spirit, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.